Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening. Postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I 
K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny King. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today's birth stories are with Mandy Maureen. After having a cesarean birth for a failed induction, Mandy was determined to have a VBAC. She did all the things to prepare and set up an extensive team to support her. Then COVID hit, and she found herself having to adjust to virtual doula support, a closed yoga studio, canceled bodywork appointments, and feeling like she was losing her resources. So, what happened when her water broke early and she found herself facing another induction? Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Parents and Parents-to-be. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Breathful. And if what you hear is helpful, then make sure you subscribe. It is free and that way you won't miss a thing. Okay, so I have been putting out a call for birth stories in the time of COVID and was thrilled, frankly, when Mandy Maureen wanted to share the details of her VBAC story. And oh, by the way, if you want to share your story, then send me an email to info at birthful.com and we'll see about having you on the show. All right, let's get to it. Mandy, welcome to the show and congratulations on your VBACs. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and before we get started, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, I'm Mandy. I'm married to my husband for about six years now, and we have now two little boys, um, one who's 21 months and one who's 11 days. <laughs> but um, yeah, they keep us busy, and we've got a little dog. And um, I used to be a teacher, and then I started staying home once my boys, my first boy was born. And I taught um, middle and high school. So being with babies is totally different, but a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. That's a that's a drastic change. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. What? Let's take you back. So I guess two, two and a half years ago when you were pregnant with your first son. And at that point, what were your birth wishes? What was your approach to birth? And what did you do to prepare for that? So I did all of the, you know, read the what to expect book and I felt like I was just going to go into labor and things were just going to happen. <laughs> but I had done like the preparation of like going to yoga. And so I was like, okay, well, this is all just going to naturally happen. And, um, and it was funny, I had read so much about like all the baby's developmental milestones, like in utero, but I really hadn't read much beyond like once you actually start going into labor, what exactly that's going to be like. And I had totally skipped over anything about C-sections because I was like, sure, that's not going to happen to me. Um, so my preparation was probably pretty lacking in retrospect. But at the time, I, I figured, oh, this is just people have babies all the time. How hard can it be? Right. But you did hire a doula. With my first, I didn't. Oh, no, you didn't. Um, Just for your second yeah, one. Yeah, okay. this was for my second one. Yeah, I, I wised up after the first. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> um, and were you at a hospital with an OB practice? Yeah, we were with an OB practice. Um, and we lived in Kentucky at the time. And what I didn't know was the particular hospital we were at had an unusually high rate of C-sections. 
Um, in fact, they've been ranked in the top 20 for C-sections in the country. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> so one of those statistics. Little, yeah. Yeah. It made it uh, in retrospect. I'm like, oh, well, then it's not that surprising that I ended up in a C-section because a lot of people do when they go there, I guess. Mm. And I'll link on the show notes an episode that I have with Dr. Neil Shaw talking about how the biggest risk factor for a cesarean is not your age, your health, your uh, provider, nothing. The biggest risk factor is the hospital you walk into. I believe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'll link that on the show notes. So then how did labor start? What happened? So with my first baby, I was um, 39 weeks and four days. I think I had my appointment that morning and my mom had come to town to stay with us. And they said, okay, you're two centimeters dilated. And I was like, woohoo, I hadn't seen any dilation yet. I was super excited. So I agreed to have them do a membrane sweep um, that morning. And um, then my mom and I just went off to lunch and got our nails done and stuff. But um, that afternoon, we were sitting in the baby's room, kind of building some furniture. And and I had had a lot of swelling throughout the pregnancy. Like I had gained, I think, 52 pounds, um, which I'm five foot two. So that's a lot on five foot two. Um, and my mom was looking at my ankles while we were sitting building furniture. And she was like, I just think your ankles look extra bad right now. Let's take your blood pressure and make sure everything's okay. And it had been at the all, all throughout my appointments, um, my blood pressure had been normal throughout the pregnancy. Well, we took it on a home cuff and it was, I think, like 145 over 100. So not, you know, astronomical, but definitely higher. And so my mom was really worrying about that. And she's like, let's just, you know, get your hospital bag. And my husband happened to be home. Uh, it was a Friday afternoon. and He had that afternoon off. So he was like, let's, just, so my mom was just like, let's just pack up your bag and make sure we have everything and go check, um, at a pharmacy, have them check it on their cuff and, um, just make sure that it's not really as high as that. And so we went to a Walgreens and they took it and the pharmacist kind of gave me a look and was like, were you expecting it to be really high? And I was like, uh Oh, how high is it? And she said, uh, I'm going to take it again, just to be sure before I tell you, and I don't want you to worry about it. Just take some deep breaths. Um, it ended up being 160 over 106. So it was even higher there. Mm. And so we ended up going to labor and delivery because that was a concern. And so we get there and, uh, my doctor actually already was there because he was doing, um, he was taking care of some other patients. So he shows up in my room in scrubs and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, are we having this baby right this minute? But he was already there for birth. So it wasn't for me. Um, and he said, well, you're, this far along, do you still want to try? And I was like, well, yeah, I still want to try. And he had, he had mentioned to me, he thought my pelvis might be small at a previous appointment. And so he said, well, there's no point in you being pregnant any longer. Let's start an induction. So we did that. Um, I started around 7 PM and then, um, just kind of were there waiting and waiting. And, um, my water broke on its own at about 7 AM. So like 12 hours in, and I was about four centimeters and I got an epidural about that point and um, baby started having some D cells, unfortunately. So they turned off the Pitocin and turned it back on and then more decelerations. And unfortunately, then um, around noon, they called it and were like, you need to have a C-section. 
And um, so baby was born at about 1.35 that afternoon, so about 18 hours of labor and didn't get past a four, unfortunately. But um, he was healthy, so um, they suspected I had preeclampsia because of the high blood pressure spike there at the end. Um, and they just weren't able to get my blood pressure under control throughout labor as well. So um, ultimately, probably for the best, but it definitely took me a long time to get past like dealing with the recovery physically, but also emotionally, just feeling like everything went crazy and that I had lost control of the situation and had no expectation of ever having a C-section. Um, so that was emotionally really challenging for me. And definitely motivated me right off the bat um, to start researching VBACs and what I needed to do to put myself in a good position for that. And how did you even know about VBACs? Well, I think the first I had heard about it was my aunt had had one. Um, so her first baby was a C-section. And I don't remember exactly why she ended in a C-section, but her ba first baby was over nine pounds. And I think they told her to expect that her babies were just going to get bigger each time. And so she went into her second pregnancy hoping for a VBAC, but not terribly optimistic. Well, all her babies, her next two babies ended up being smaller. And so I think she was the first one I had really heard about um, because both of, so all of her kids are my cousins, obviously, and um, but they're all younger than me. So I was kind of aware of um, her pregnancies. And I remember being there, um, like waiting for her um, when she was in the hospital with her youngest and so I think I had heard it first from her and then kind of done my own research in various like mom groups online. And um, I got connected with ICANN online, which was a really great resource as well. Mm -hmm. I love ICANN. I'll link it on the show notes. Um, well, it's great that you knew about VVAX because then yeah, I'm very surprised, but at the same time, really like good for you that as soon as you were you know, having this new baby and processing all this and understanding everything that happened and, and being a little bit in shock from it, um, that you immediately went, okay, what do I need to know for the next one? Um, because uh, some people's reaction is like, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. And it definitely shook me quite a bit because I've always, we've always said that we wanted a big family and now my definition of big family might be more like five kids and my husband might be more three. We'll, we'll figure that out eventually. But um, I was really worried that having a C-section and maybe having to have another might limit my ability to have as many kids as we would want. So I think that was a big motivator for me. Was I was like, I don't want another surgery like that. That was awful. And the recovery was really difficult. And so I, I was really, I think, motivated in part by wanting multiple children. And um, so really looking into that and making sure I was setting myself up at least as best as I could. And, and I think the other thing for me was feeling like things just got spiraled out of control once we were in the hospital and just, um, oh, one of the things I didn't mention was when they went to place my epidural, I have mild scoliosis and it took them three tries over the course of an hour and a half to place my epidural. Um, so that was really awful, a really awful experience. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that. And, and I had just read all these things, um, from ICANN and from various other groups, um, that having lots of interventions can ultimately lead to a repeat cesarean. So I was like, oh, well, I really need to uh, figure this out so that I can prevent this from happening again. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. And it seemed like with the all the things, it was like a tra- what you're describing to me is the textbook cascade of interventions. Exactly. Um, which a lot of people don't know about. But at the same time, I'm really encouraged to hear you say that because a lot of people also don't know that if you have a cesarean that increases your chances of having another cesarean but also there's you can't just keep on having cesareans forever every cesarean creates more scar tissue and and can be and becomes more complicated and can take longer and i know people who've had a cesarean uh, or cesarean and then another cesarean and then another cesarean and then doctor saying well you you can't get pregnant again because we can't do this again your body can't tolerate it exactly yeah and I had a good friend who with her third pregnancy it was it ended up being her third cesarean she had um, placenta accreta and that was a really scary thing where she ended up having to go to a specialty hospital and have, you know, neonatologists like on standby ready to handle everything with the baby. And they had a lot of stares with that pregnancy. So that was definitely an example for me of what I was hoping to avoid as well. Mm-hmm. And I'll link on the show notes also an episode that I did on VBAC Facts with Jen Camel. Um, oh, great. Yeah. And she talks about the placenta accreta and, and the different levels of how the placenta can attach in, you know, into the uterus or pass into your layers or in, into the scar and so forth, right? So that it gets to the point where it can be life-threatening for sure. Absolutely. Mm. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to hear all about your second birth. We'll be right back. And we are back talking to Mandy Maureen. And yeah, so fast forward to you had your baby, you were researching did you start researching before or trying to figure out how to do things differently before you got pregnant or which came first? <laughs> um, it was a little bit before because we had started talking um, to my OB. At my, we started, I think, talking even at my six-week appointment after my first baby was born and asked him about um, what did he think about my chances of a successful VBAC. And what I didn't <laughs> know going into it that kind of shocked me was he said, oh, I don't do VBACs. And I was like, what? What do you mean you don't do VBACs? And it turned out because he was a small private practice, just him and one other doctor, that they hadn't, I guess, got the malpractice insurance at the level where they could do VBACs because of the, the associated risks, or at least that was how he explained it. And I was kind of stunned by that. I was like, okay, um, well, I guess I'm going to be shopping for a new doctor. And that was kind of bizarre. But um, so we ended up starting to talk to um, other people I knew in the area. I was in a breastfeeding support group. And so I asked a bunch of them, like, who would you recommend if you were trying for a VBAC? And a lot, there were a whole lot of them who had had C-sections as well. And a lot of them were not even going to try for a VBAC for their next baby, but I was bound and determined. So I was like, okay, who do you, who do you know? Who should I ask? And it turned out um, we found a doctor locally um, who did VBACs and we went to see him as soon as I got pregnant. We, I think we talked to him ahead of time. Um, but once I got pregnant, it was about a year, almost exactly a year after my son was born, my first son. And um, so we started talking to this new doctor. We saw him at uh, 
eight weeks or let's see, I think it was six weeks and then 10 weeks. Yeah. Six weeks just to do a blood test to confirm that I was pregnant, which, um, I had pretty regular cycles. So it was pretty easy to track. And, um, so they confirmed it. They said, congratulations and come back in a month and we'll do an ultrasound and take a look at baby. Um, which was pretty cool because with my first pregnancy, they didn't do an early ultrasound, a first trimester ultrasound. So I was pretty excited about that and got to see baby a lot sooner. Mm. Um, yeah. And so that was, that was very exciting to, um, have care and have someone who flat out told me he did a pap smear at my appointment with him. And he said, I don't see any reason why you couldn't push a baby out. And I was like, Oh, you're you're believing in me. I was so excited. Yeah, I've got to, like that must have felt really validating, especially after having somebody else say, "Oh, this is probably a problem." Yeah, absolutely. I was really over the moon to hear someone tell me my pelvis wasn't weird shaped or whatever. Right. I was like, and having read up on it since then, I was like, "Well, wait a minute. It's I read about um, small pelvises are usually people in third world countries or people who have been malnourished as a child, and, and that didn't apply to me. So, well, and like... also the <laughs> pelvis has you've got uh, relaxant going to your body, so your pelvic pelvis can change and shift and mo- move, right? And the absolutely sim- pubic symphysis right at the front is not attached the tailbone moves out of the way and baby's head is squishy like positioning (laughs) can provide so much space or limit space more than whatever definition i think it's ina may gaskin that says you can't know if a baby's going to fit until the through the pelvis until the baby's going through Right. And I never got to that point. I only got to four centimeters with my son. And he wasn't huge. He came out, he was eight pounds, eight ounces. So a good size baby, but not like astronomically large. Mm -hmm. And so did you find that throughout the rest of your pregnancy, you kept feeling supported by this doctor that he was VBAC supportive and not just VBAC tolerant? So he was, um, although oddly enough, we ended up moving. So we ended up moving from Kentucky to North Carolina when I was only, I think, uh, 14 weeks. So although he was awesome and I would have stuck with him, we ended up moving. So I ended up having to find another doctor and I was really worried um, because I had heard people say, oh, the further south you go, the less feedback supportive um, providers are. And so I started doing some research, trying to find someone. Um, actually, before we even found anywhere to live when we moved, um, I had found a doctor I was looking into. So um, I found my current OB in North Carolina, and they actually were even more supportive. Um, and partially, I think, because um, they're all Catholic, so they all have big families. So they understood that I wanted to have a lot of kids and that having a lot of um, cesareans was probably not going to be a good way to go to right. have multiple children. Yeah. And so you moved, you found your OB. And then what else did you do to prepare? So then I started searching for a doula and it actually worked out that at my first OB visit, I asked them, I was like, do you all know, because um, people in ICANN had said, um, if your OB recommends a doula, that's a really good sign that they're supportive um, because then they, they have experience working with doulas and they're not going to be weird about it if you have one in the room when you're delivering your baby. So they actually gave me the name of my doula who was uh, the one who introduced me to you and um, sent me her um, birth story on your podcast. 
Yeah, and, she shared her birth story. Yeah. Um, yeah, and she's wonderful. We'll um, definitely <laughs> link her episode uh, on the show notes as well. Awesome. Yeah. 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 Course. So we met with their doula group. Um, and they could not have been more wonderful. I just had, we met them like at a Panera and we're just like, oh, this is, this is the right person. These are the right people to help us and to support us. Cause I think one of the things I was most worried about was being able to advocate for myself once I was in the hospital, because I, I figured, um, from what I had heard, it was going to be really hard to, uh, have my baby anywhere other than in the hospital as a VBAC, or at least as a first time VBAC. Um, the birth centers around here, unfortunately, do not usually allow for VBACs. Um, I'm not sure if the next time I'd be able to because I've had one, but um, from what I've heard, it's it's a little difficult. So I was like, okay, I definitely want to have a doula and I want to avoid that cascade of interventions. Um, so I felt like I was kind of assembling my team. <laughs> I had my OBs that were OBs that were super supportive and were very much on board, like they told me, you know, normally we don't induce for VBAC. And at first that was like a red flag that I had heard about from, uh, from ICANN that, uh-oh, if they say they won't induce for a VBAC, then that might mean they're not supportive. But come to find out, they were just saying like, well, we take it case by case. So we'll, you know, work with you as we go along. And I was like, okay, I'm going to trust you and um, hope for the best. Excellent. But and you wrote to me that you also started doing some body work and a bunch of other things to try to be supportive of your physiology. Yes, I did um, some spinning babies. I did. I found a prenatal yoga studio here. Um, I was eating dates. I was drinking the red raspberry leaf tea. Um, the doula group does a VBAC class specifically where um, Jessica, the one who kind of specializes in VBAC, she'll come to where you live and with you and your husband and do a VBAC class and walk you through um, everything. And And it turned out that um, my baby had flipped transverse at about 36 weeks. So I was all on board with spinning babies at that point. And um, we even did, um, there's a midwife at the OB practice as well. And she instructed us on belly binding to try and like hold baby because they, they, um, they did a couple of ultrasounds there at like 36 and 38 weeks, I think. Um, yeah, 36, 37, and 38 weeks. They did ultrasounds to see baby's position after feeling like baby was transverse. And um, so they were saying, well, you have a little bit of a diastasis, probably left over from your first pregnancy, and baby just has, you know, quite a bit of room still to move. So we discussed um, an ECV, but they didn't think we needed to go that route because baby still had so much room. Um, so I was all about the spinning babies. We bought an ironing board so I could lay upside down and do the um, pelvic tilts and do um, a breech tilt on the ironing board. And yeah, so I was hanging out upside down quite a bit and doing <laughs> a lot of walking and um, we live in an apartment complex right now. So I was like curb walking. I was trying to do all the things to like keep my pelvis moving and opening. And yeah, with the whole COVID thing, it kind of messed things up um, because I had to stop um, going to yoga. I mean, she started, I was very lucky. The yoga instructor started live streaming the yoga classes. So that was really helpful. I could still do it, but I'm not as good at following when I don't have someone to tell me, oh, you're doing that wrong or um, move a little bit to the side or whatever the case may be. 
so that was unfortunate with um with the COVID situation that we couldn't go to yoga anymore. <laughs> well, and that was going to be my next question. Um, what are all the adjustments that you had to make in your preparation once that COVID hit? Um, but let's take a quick break before we get into that. We'll be right back. Diaper rash. It can be a truly uncomfortable experience for a baby. And so I find that one of the biggest conundrums when diapering is figuring out what diaper cream to use. So many options are thick and goopy, making them hard to apply and hard to wipe off. But I can personally say that this is not the case for Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant that is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, designed as a breathable formula to help maintain an optimal skin barrier while allowing the healing to occur. This butt balm was developed by a mom who is also a doctor, hence the name Dr. Mom Butt Balm, when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash and she wasn't about to settle. So she created Dr. Mom Butt Balm to go on smooth and be easy to remove while also being gentle on your baby's delicate skin. With Dr. Mom Butt Balm, you can say goodbye to excessive wiping to clean your little one's already chafed skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is so soft and goes on so smooth that you'll only need a small amount instead of having to layer on a thick goop. Plus, it has a lovely minty scent. Learn more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com. That's drmombuttbalm.com or look for it at Amazon.com. With Mother's Day coming up fast, are you looking to get your mom, grandma, or mother figure a gift that they'll actually love? You know, something that is treasured instead of dying out or collecting dust? If so, you need to know about mylifeinabook.com, which is a service that helps turn their life stories into a beautiful book that can be passed down. How amazing is that? And the process couldn't be easier. Basically, if they can use email, they can create their book. Every week, My Life in a Book will send them an email with a prompt question to get them started. And if they don't like the question, they can easily edit it or change it. We gave a My Life in a Book to a family member that always wants to document all family get-togethers through images. And let me tell you, the process of sending the gift was super simple, even letting us choose the date we wanted the gift to be sent. I'm so looking forward to discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, and the challenges she has overcome. And since My Life in a Book lets you add an image with each answer, she can now share the story that goes along with her many photos. Another great thing is that the answers can be edited at any time before the book is printed, in case she wants to add anything else. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 10% off today. And we are back talking with Mandy Maureen about your VBAC story. And so, yeah, you had everything in place. You were doing all the things. Things were looking good. Everybody was supporting you. Then COVID hit. What did you need to adjust? 
So the biggest adjustment I think that I was really scared about was finding out. So we had just had our VBAC class with Jessica Ardula on, I believe, March 11th. And literally the next day was when the hospitals in our area started limiting who could come with a laboring mother um, to the hospital. And I was like, no, this is my, my team. My team needs to be there. I, I need them. And, and I had this whole plan that, um, that Jessica or if somebody else was on call for us um, would be with me and my mom and my husband. And I was like, no, we're going to, I need this to be different than it was last time. So finding out that they were going to limit it first, they said down to um, two people with a laboring mother. And I was like, okay, well, my mom will probably watch my son and then I'll still have our doula and I'll still have my husband and we'll, you know, we'll make do. Well, then I think a week goes by and they change it. And again, and so now we're down to just one person. And my husband is so sweet and he even offered to let the doula be my one person. But I was like, I'm not going to have you miss the birth of our child. That's that's not reasonable. Right? That is such a hard decision people are having to make because you're not the first person that I've heard having to say that, right? Of, well, yeah. my doula would be so helpful, but I don't want my partner, my husband, whoever to miss the birth of our child. Right. Absolutely. So that was really tough. And luckily, I think that was a good little um, motivator for my husband to really dig into some um, birth podcasts I made him listen to. Um, prior to that, he was like, oh, well, Jessica will tell me what to do and it'll be all right. <laughs> and then he was like, uh-oh, Jessica's not going to be there. <laughs> so we talked with her about what our options were. And they, um, as a doula group, they decided that they could offer to come in person before you go to the hospital and help you labor at home as long as possible. And then um, be virtual support after that point, once we got to the hospital. And so that was our tentative plan was we would labor as long as possible at home, which was definitely my preference, especially after being stuck only at a four with my first baby. I didn't want to go to the hospital too early and have them, you know, have that cascade of interventions and then again, have to have a, a repeat cesarean. So that was the plan. Um, but unfortunately I was also group B strep positive. So that kind of, um, changed the dynamics a little bit because we were worried about, well, if my water breaks, then um, what do we do? So we were, I was still trying to like naturally induce labor and just walk, walk, walk and um, be outside a lot and um, listening to lots of podcasts and um, just trying to stay positive. I had my, um, my affirmations on, uh, on sticky notes on my bathroom mirror, just trying to stay positive um, that it was all going to work out and um, I even ended up, um, the midwife at my OB practice suggested I even try a chiropractor, which I had never done before um, because of baby flipping transverse, um, which baby had moved a couple different times where they were like, oh, baby's head down. And I was like, yay. And then baby was transverse again. And then baby was head down. And I was like, oh, goodness, this is a little crazy. So they recommended trying to go to the chiropractor. So I did that three times. Um, and she was certified in the Webster technique, which I had heard a lot about, um, in ICANN and some of the other mom groups I'm in as well. So I continued eating my dates and drinking my tea and, 
um, it ended up that my water broke before labor started. Um, uh, just what you wanted, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was a Friday. I had been to the chiropractor Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Oh, and I had done, um, I had been doing my yoga on, uh, um, online with the instructor and she was so sweet because I, I messaged her before she started class that like Wednesday night, I want to say. And I was like, my baby is transverse again. Cause she had, I had been keeping up with her even though I couldn't see her in person. And she was like, Oh, we're going to open up your pelvis tonight. And so she spent like the first part of class, like just doing stuff for me to try and get baby to um, be in a good position. And, and um, she was so sweet. And so then throughout the class, she'd be like, Oh, and Mandy do this, like add this to your movements and, and make sure you're watching like how your hips are and, and not letting your um, knees be above your hips um, when you're sitting down and stuff. And, and she was really sweet. So we're, we're still trying to do all the things, but um, then my water broke. So it was about noon on Friday and my um, OB practice, they close early on Fridays. So I called them like kind of frantically, like, can you fit me in real quick? Cause I, what I wanted was for them to do an ultrasound and see. So if my water's broken, I'm like, is baby even head down? Because um, that might be a big problem because they warned me if I went into active labor with baby still transverse, then there are issues with um, potentially cord prolapse. If the cord like drops down before baby's head does or um, shoulder dystocia, if the shoulder drops down into the birth canal instead of the head. And so I knew all of this and I was like, oh boy, this might be about to be another C-section um, but my water hadn't broken a lot. So I was also kind of questioning. I was like, well, I know I didn't pee myself. <laughs> I've had my water broken before with my son, but my first son, but I was like, I think it might be, but it was just a little bit. So I called um, the office and they said, well, if you think your water has broken, you need to go to labor and delivery at the hospital. And that was exactly what I didn't want to hear. <laughs> I wanted to go into their office, have them check. But they said, well, we don't have the lab here to test for amniotic fluid. And if you're group B strep positive, we just need to know, is it your water or is it not? And so I was kind of gearing up. I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to the hospital. And um, meanwhile, you know, we have my toddler at home. And so I was just going to go to the hospital by myself. Um, and thinking, well, maybe it's not my water. They'll just test me and then I can go home. But luckily my husband was keeping my mom informed about this and she lives about an hour and a half from us. And so she calls me as I'm literally sitting in my car about to leave. And she says, I really don't think you should go straight to the hospital. And I was like, well, I just, I just don't know. And I was kind of freaking out a little bit. And she was like, just, you know, take a deep breath, like think it through. And she's like, I can come right now. Like I will leave my house right now and come be with your son. And then, um, you, then your husband can go with you. So you don't go to the hospital by yourself. And I was like, okay, I I'll wait. I won't go yet. And like right after that, I got a call from two of the doulas from the doula group. And I just started walking around the complex of my apartment complex, talking to them. And it was really helpful because they were just like walking me through. They're like, okay, here's, if this, if this is your water breaking, here are what your options are. Um, if you go to the hospital, here's what they're probably going to tell you. Here's what you can say. And they just really gave me a good idea of what to expect and helped me to get out of my little panicked spiral there. <laughs> so that was super helpful. And, uh, and 
unfortunately they weren't able to come over um, to be with me in person because I ended up going to the hospital within a couple hours once my mom arrived. Um, but even that virtual support was super, super helpful for me and just kind of talking me off the ledge. And yeah. And it's, down. it seems like both in your doula and your mom were very centering and kind of your mom voiced a reason saying, yeah, just wait an hour. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. And that was why, like, when I was planning this all out and trying to control everything, I was like, I want my doula and I want my mom because they are just, you know, the calm people who are going to talk me down and keep me centered and focused. So they both definitely were super important um, to keeping me <laughs> keeping me calm for sure. Hmm. Once you got to the hospital, what were the considerations? Anything different because of COVID in terms of the intake, the triage process, and getting you to a room? So the first thing was we go to walk into the hospital and they do a screening process where they ask you the usual questions. Have you been in contact with anyone who is suspected or has been confirmed a case of COVID? Um, have you had any symptoms? And they list off, you know, fever, cough. Um, and I think they listed off a few other symptoms that I didn't even know were symptoms, but luckily neither my husband nor I had any. Um, so they screened us and then, um, got us visitor passes into our particular hospital has a separate um, emergency department just for OB. So luckily we weren't in like just the emergency room. We were separate. So they have a separate elevator that goes up to the two floors that have OB and mother and baby units. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really good. I, I felt good about that um, being separate from anyone who might have contracted it. But they also, from what I understood from asking the nurses throughout the process, they weren't having a whole lot of cases. Our county is pretty spread out. So I think um, we haven't had a huge amount of cases, at least not compared to like New York or anywhere, a bigger city. Um, so our sprawl, I think, has protected us to some degree. So everyone was wearing masks. That was a weird part. Um, it made it really hard to recognize people um, because you'd have, you know, nurses coming in and out, and especially with shift changes, I'd be like, wait, okay, this is a new nurse. This is not the same one. But when you couldn't see half their face, it made it hard to recognize them. And I know they, I'm sure it must be such a pain to have it on and trying to just do your job and breathe properly and everything. Mm -hmm. And then once you got your visitor pass and you went up to triage, was there anything else that was different? Different. Um, what was the what happened then? So I think it was all pretty similar to what it would have been uh, pre-COVID because they were so separate. Um, so we went in and they had me uh, give a fluid sample. So they checked for my fluid and, and then they came back in and said. Um, it's amniotic fluid. You're having this baby. And, um, they started watching my blood pressure there. They had me hooked up to test my blood pressure and it started going high at that point. And I told them, I was like, I, I've always had white coat hypertension where if I'm in a hospital or I'm in a doctor's office, my blood pressure goes higher than it normally would. Cause I get a little nervous and especially in a high stress environment of you're going to have a baby like any time now. Um, I was like, I don't think it's, I think it's artificially high right now, but it, it went pretty high. So they were worried about that, but um, they went to check me then. I had not had my cervix checked at all through this pregnancy. And I figured I probably would have, I was only uh, 38 weeks and four days at this point. 
Um, I hadn't had it checked at all. So they checked me and I have no dilation. I'm a zero and I'm hard and high. And those were just such defeating words. It was exactly not what I wanted to hear. And they wanted to keep me. They wanted to admit me, which was exactly what I didn't want to do. Mm. So I asked the, um, the, it was just the um, hospitalist who I was speaking with at that point. They hadn't got my doctor there yet. And um, I was like, can I sign an AMA and go home? Because I'm not having any contractions. Can you give me some antibiotics for the GBS? And then let me go home and I'll come back. And she said, well, you could both die. So I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> Whoa. Like, yeah, <laughs> it was pretty in, in, intense response. And luckily, having listened to so many birth podcasts, I knew that that was actually something that had happened to a lot of other people and that probably we wouldn't die, but <laughs> that they really wanted me to stay. So they were saying that f- to influence me. Um, so we ended up getting um, – so by the time we were admitted and – Um, everything, the on-call for the weekend had started. And as luck would have it, it was the one weekend out of the month that my particular OB practice was not on-call for themselves. They have another practice that they partner with just for one weekend a month. And so I ended up having, for the entire weekend, a doctor I had never met before. And so I felt like it was just, you know, everything getting out of control again. And I was having a hard time with that because I couldn't have my doula there. I couldn't have my mom there. And my OB practice was not covering that weekend. So what were you doing to try to keep yourself centered and not just let things spiral spiral out of control? So having my doula on call, like on FaceTime calls was crucial. She, um, she FaceTimed in and it actually worked out really well that having her on FaceTime because then Anytime the doctor came in, we just like pulled the phone up. We're like, hey, we want her to listen in too. And she just really kept me centered and um, talked me through. Like, so when the doctor said, well, you might both die, like I I talked to her after the doctor had left the room and she goes, okay, so here is what's really happening. Here are what your options are. And I asked her flat out, I was like, "If, if you were me, would you leave or would you stay put? And she said, you know, your blood pressure is a little high and there's just a lot of factors right now. And she said, I think you should stay. But she said it in such a calm way that it just really was a lot more soothing than you might both die. So (laughs) um, she just, you know, helped me to understand where the doctor was coming from and what the actual risk factors were um, in a non-frenzied, scary way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I could make what felt like a a much more informed decision. Got it. Yeah. And so this was, you were saying, Friday afternoon. I guess it must be Friday evening where you were Mm -hmm. admitted. And what happened next? When you guys got into a room, were you, was the hospital on lockdown in the sense that once you and the support person went in, nobody could switch out and you had to stay in the room? Or what was the policy? So they said that my husband could come and go, but that we couldn't swap out for a different person. He had a bracelet um, to match mine, and they said he was the only one who was going to be allowed with me. Um, But he was able, luckily, to go get some things um, that we hadn't thought we needed because we really just thought we were going to go home. (laughs) We weren't convinced we were staying, but um, once we knew we were staying, he was able to go get some. I had left my glasses at home of all things. 
<laughs> yeah. So he went and got those for me and checked in on my mom who was with our son. And, um, but they did say, they did say we could walk the halls, but then when I asked, um, to do it, the nurse was really like worried about it. And she's like, eh, I really would rather you didn't. Um, she's like, you definitely would have to wear a mask. And I just, I don't know. So I didn't push it because I was like, okay, well, this room is fairly big. So we'll walk around here. And um, yeah, so they they really did want us to stay put as much as possible, but they did allow my husband to come and go. But he didn't come and go very much. He just left the one time. But um, yeah, he was the only one allowed in. And um, we did double check. I was like, is there any chance my doula could come? Like anything that we could do to influence you to let that happen? And and they said, no, I'm sorry. And, um, but she was able to FaceTime us. So that was, that was actually really helpful. Mm-hmm. It ended up being a very long induction process. So I think it may have actually been for the best. It all kind of fell into place ultimately um, that she was home and able to actually get some rest because I ended up being there from Friday afternoon until um, I had my baby Sunday afternoon. Yeah, so a couple of days. So you got to really mm-hmm. experience a lot of shift changes and interact with a lot of care providers. What was their demeanor? And, you know, were they stressed out? Were they extra tired? Or were they extra accommodating to your needs? I'm curious about how their approach has changed during these times of COVID. I felt like they were very accommodating. We were really impressed with the care we received while we were there. Um, We had um, met with anesthesia since I had had issues with my epidural before. My husband really wanted me to meet with the anesthesiologist as soon as possible when we got there. Um, Even if I wasn't going to get an epidural, my husband was fearful that if I needed one to end up having a C-section, that they would have difficulty Um, placing it like they did with my first son. So we met with the anesthesiologist and we actually met with every single one of them who was uh, as the shift changes happened (laughs) and they were all wonderful. And they took a look at my back and we talked about, you know, this was difficult last time. And um, so I ended up getting an epidural uh, the next day and we had met like three different anesthesiologists by this point, but they were all wonderful. And one of the things though that had changed was Um, I had looked into what were my other pain management options and I had heard that this hospital offered nitrous oxide. And so that was something that was on my birth plan. And I was like, okay, I want to have, I want to try that before I go for an epidural because I was trying to avoid that cascade of interventions. And, um, they said, actually right now, because of COVID, we can't do nitrous oxide. They said it was going to be too, um, too much exposure and too much, um, I guess they couldn't clean the equipment properly. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, yeah, I've been he- for that. I have been hearing that um, in my the, the hospitals in my area where the nitrous is not no longer available because it requires, you know, there's this mask in it and that doesn't get reused, but the tubing and the O2 tubing right. and all that, um, they can't really keep it safe enough so that's been off the table and then for pain medication 
uh, we offer, or the, the hospitals in my area offer Nubane. And the thing with Nubane is it's manufactured in China. So oh. the, yeah, the, there's, they're running out. So in some hospitals, it's no longer available either. Um, basically, it's epidural is the only option or non-medicated comfort measures, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I do have a series of questions that... Uh, we've developed between a group of doulas here and I've got to get give a big shout out to Kathleen Manillo for doing that of questions to ask providers extra questions and to ask your place of birth as well regarding the process of COVID and also you know how do they clean the rooms and how often do they get cleaned and are the people cleaning it wearing masks like a little bit more in depth to to be reassured of how your care is going to be once you get there in terms of the protective mechanisms for COVID. You know, are there going to be any other, um, how far will you be from other COVID patients? And can they guarantee that you won't be in contact with COVID patients? So I'll list it on the show notes. I'll put a link to it, a downloadable PDF um, for anybody who wants to jump into that. But did you guys ask any specific questions like those that I was saying before going in? I think oddly enough, because of the strange circumstances of my water breaking without contractions, COVID was kind of not even on our minds as much. And I think the other thing that helped us to feel really secure was the fact that we were on a totally different floor than any of the other patients in the hospital. And our nurses were separate. And even the anesthesiologist was specific to the OB floor and not to the rest of the hospital. So I felt like our risk of exposure was definitely better or, or, um, or less likely than if we had been in any other part of the hospital or if we had been in a hospital where I would have had to maybe be in triage in the regular emergency room or something like that. Mm. And I do appreciate that they had a separate entrance as well in, in your hospital. That is also encouraging. So we've got the scenario of all the COVID things, <laughs> <laughs> but... Back to your story itself, you were you came in Friday afternoon, and you then it was long in two day induction. Like what did they start and how did that process go? You mentioned you got an epidural on Saturday. So we ended up doing a pitocin to start with. Since I was totally closed, I had asked about doing like a Foley balloon or a Cook's catheter. And my OB practice said they normally don't do that, but that they would be open to it because they knew with my circumstances, like I really wanted my V back. And so we had discussed it at previous appointments. Well, I get the um, the on-call doctor who was not of my practice and he said, oh, I'm totally open to a Foley catheter, but you're not dilated at all. So I can't place it right now. And I was like, oh dear. So we ended up doing the Pitocin, which I was really worried about, but he said he thought, um, he was very, very straight up with me and told me he thought I had about a 50, 50 shot of it happening. And so it wasn't totally what I wanted to hear, but I felt like he wasn't pulling any punches. He wasn't trying to coerce me or, uh, get me to think one thing or the other. And so we did the Pitocin. I rested overnight. I had done a bunch of, um, lunges and things. Um, and then Jessica, my doula and my mom were both encouraging me to get some rest that night. Um, so overnight, uh, we didn't see a whole lot of change. The next morning, um, I was still pretty closed. 
And the doctor said, well, I'll come back and see you at lunchtime and we'll see if we can get that catheter in. So then we did the mild circuit and um, we're moving as much as we possibly could. I took a shower and just, and luckily we had the wireless monitors because for a VBAC, they insisted I had continuous monitoring, but we did have a wireless um, water resistant uh, monitor. So I could get in the shower and um, by about lunchtime, the doctor came back and he said, okay, I can get that Cook's catheter in there. So he got that in. Um, and I still tried to keep moving around and, um, that was way more intense than I expected it to be. People had warned me that it was, it was pretty painful to do the Cook's catheter. Um, but I was not fully prepared all the same. <laughs> so I ended up getting, um, one of the narcotics that they do in just in my IV bag, because I, again, I was still trying not to have an epidural. Um, and so he, he had placed the Cook's catheter around noon. By about 6.30, I, I got the IV narcotic. And then I was really just fighting the contractions um, by about 10 or so that night. And I just felt like we weren't making progress because the catheter had not fallen out. Although they told me they didn't expect it to fall out until about 12 hours after it had been put in. But I was really discouraged and I just felt like I was fighting the contractions and just kind of curled up on my side, not really getting a lot of movement. So I ended up saying, okay, I want the epidural, even though I was actually more scared about getting the epidural than I was about being in labor because my previous experience had been so negative with an epidural. But once I got the epidural and we had this wonderful nurse who was just so soothing and so comforting and, and she was like, I think it's a good, a good plan. I think you're going to relax. And I think things will get moving. Um, and sure enough, maybe 20 minutes after they had placed my epidural with no issues, they, it didn't take them multiple tries. And um, after they placed my epidural, the Cook's catheter popped right out. Um, and I was at a four. And I was over the moon Yay. of being at a four. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So then um, this wonderful what nurse was helping us. And um, she was like, you just need to rest. It was like midnight by this point. And she's like, we'll do the peanut ball and I'll flip you over like every 30 or 40 minutes and we'll just keep going and things will happen. She was just super positive. I was going to say when, um, the, when you got to four, did you have any feelings, any emotional stuff come up as since that's how far you got along with your first one? Did, did that raise any feelings or were you just super excited and, and tired and just wanting to keep going? Definitely. It definitely raised some emotions because I was like, okay, I got this far last time. Is this where I'm going to be stuck now or am I going to keep going? Um, so it really helped that that particular nurse who was um, my nurse for the 12-hour shift um, was just so positive. And one of the things that really helped me being a, you know, a VBAC patient was none of the people at the hospital referred to me as a TOLAC. And I don't know if that just would have had me in my head even more, but um, I had been warned that like, they're going to say you're a TOLAC, you're a trial of labor after cesarean until you successfully push that baby out, then you're a VBAC. And I was like, okay. So I was ready for that, but it was really wonderful. None of the nurses referred to me as a TOLAC. They're like, you're having your VBAC. They were all very positive. Um, and that was crucial for me to like keep my head in the game, mm -hmm. um, especially as things with the Cook's catheter, the contractions were almost coupling. There was almost no break between them and they were really intense. Um, doing both the Cook's catheter and the Pitocin at the same time. So then 
um, overnight. The next morning I told the nurse, I said, well, I think I'm feeling some low pressure now. And the epidural was working, but it wasn't like I was, I wasn't totally numb, like to not feel my legs at all or anything like that. And so she checked me around six in the morning and I was at a seven and I was about in tears. I was so excited because I had gotten further than I had progressed the last time. And she told me I was 80% effaced and that baby had moved down to a negative one station. Um, when previously, when the doctor checked me the first time, when I, when he got the Cook's catheter in, he said, okay, I got the Cook's catheter in, but baby's like up in your tonsils still. So we need to move this baby down. And it's like, baby's negative one. I was so excited. (laughs) All those little things make such a difference, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. And the fact that they were saying you're you're having your V back and being so encouraging and positive, that does make a difference for sure. Oh, absolutely. And it was funny because I wasn't totally comfortable with the doctor because he wasn't one of my doctors usually. But I think ultimately he was the right doctor for me to have this feedback um, because he was just very blunt with me. And I think that was exactly what I needed. And I'm, I'm a big believer that things happen the way they're supposed to happen and there are no coincidences. And I think him being on call that weekend, it was the right fit for what I needed to make that feedback happen. So my um, contractions are somewhat spaced out at that point. So they put in a interuterine monitor, which I didn't even know what that was until then. Let's um, explain it. <laughs> yeah. So they wanted to track my contractions for their um, effectiveness. And they told me that they were looking to see a certain level of intensity um, to show that they were actually pushing baby into position and down um, and that they were causing dilation. Otherwise, they were going to be worried that I was stalling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that's the best way to explain that. Well, but, and, yeah. Um, and so what is important to know is when you have, um, you know, continuous fetal monitoring and you have two bands, one is looking at the contractions and the other one at the baby's heartbeat. The one that's looking at the contractions, it just noticed, like it can sense that a contraction is happening, but it really does not pick up intensity. So... Sometimes you'll see the mountains, like, right, your contractions show up higher or bigger than other times, but it has nothing to do with intensity. It's more positional of how the this monitor is picking it up so by putting it in the catheter uh, the internal monitor what they're doing is it goes between the baby's head and the uterus and it can actually measure the force that the uterus is applying to the head so it it actually gives a number like of of strength Um, and that's the only way they can get an idea of how strong the contractions are Yeah. So that was really helpful when I got um, further along because I could see, okay, these are spacing out a little bit. And I felt a little bit more of like I wanted to move some, I mean, within reason, having an epidural, you can't move that much, but using the peanut ball. And then we tried um, having me sit up to kind of use gravity um, for a bit. And uh, the nurse had me like uh, put my feet like in Taylor pose, like in yoga, where your knees are apart and you're pushing like your feet together um, to kind of open things up and it ultimately worked. And so, um, I got checked again at about, uh, 1231 o'clock, I think. And the nurse came in and I'll never forget, like, it was just such a cool moment because she went to check me and she goes, Oh, Oh my goodness. That's the baby's head. And I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And she said, 
you're a 10, you're ready to go. And I was, I was just over the moon. Um, I called my mom real quick and thinking we had like minutes until we were going to start pushing. I called my mom and I was on FaceTime with her for a second. I was like, mom, mom, I'm a 10, I'm a 10, I'm going to do it. And we were both crying and just so excited. And, um, and she was like, you got this, you got this. And, and I told her, call, like, tell our family because we were trying to keep everyone updated. But I, I was like, we're about to start pushing, so we don't have time. We can't call everyone. And um, little did we know, across the hall was a lady who had no epidural. And I had been hearing her a little bit. And I thought, oh, she's probably, like, progressing and stuff. And um, it turned out she was at a 10 also at the same time. So my nurse had to go be with her to push her baby out first. So we ended up having to wait like an hour until we could start pushing. And by then I was actually feeling the urge to push, which I wasn't sure I would feel with the epidural, but I really was. And I was having to fight to not push. And they're telling me, don't push yet. Don't push yet until we're ready. And I was like, no, I'm ready. I'm like all excited. Like, don't make me wait. <laughs> but, well, um, and yeah. clearly, I mean, blessings in disguise, right? That waiting for an hour because the person across the hall was having baby was they were full on pushing and no epidural that allowed your baby to labor down and probably saved you some pushing time. Yeah, I think it could have. Um, cause th- they said, um, like as soon as we started pushing the nurse, she was so sweet. Um, she was like, do you want a mirror? And at first I was like, Oh, I don't know about that. But she was like, okay, hear me out. She said a lot of moms are freaked out by the concept, but then they actually like having a mirror cause they feel motivated. They can see baby coming and see progress being made. And I was like, okay, okay. And she was like, so we'll have the mirror in here. I'll cover it. If you don't want to see it, it's fine. Well, like as soon as we started pushing, I could see baby's head. Like I could see a little bit of baby's hair. Um, little did I know that he had a full head of hair. <laughs> this child has so much hair. <laughs> so it was it was really motivating to have that mirror up because I could see him. And I didn't know he was a him at the time, but um, I could see. And it did take a while. I ended up having a lot of swelling. So they think that was part of why it took so long. But I ended up pushing for about two and a half hours, um, which was rough. But um so worth it. <laughs> and then I had my little boy and it was pretty funny though. There, there were some funny moments. My husband um, remembers it a little better than I do and had to kind of retell it to me after the fact because I was in labor land and pushing and everything. Um, but there were times where I was asking, like I wanted to see the mirror, but they had moved it out of the way because the doctor had scrubbed up and um, was ready to catch the baby. And I was like yelling at them, mirror, mirror, I wanted it back. And and my husband was like, well, they were just kind of ignoring you because they knew baby was coming any second and they need to be ready to catch him. Uh-huh. Um, so what position were you in at that point? Were you on your back or more on your side? So I ended up being more on my back, which was not what I expected. I had read all these things about, oh, don't be on your back. You want to be on your side or squatting or and they had a squatting bar for me, and I tried that briefly. But then um, I think just being kind of in a uh, reclined – I wasn't like fully on my back, but I was somewhat reclined – seemed to work for me in terms of being able to utilize the little uh, stirrup things. I kind of pushed against them and got myself into a position that felt more natural, which was – a total learning experience for me since I had never pushed before and had to learn how to push and everything. But, um, yeah, so we ended up being 
not in any of the, uh, not meeting a lot of the expectations I had for what I put in my birth plan and everything, but it all did work out. It just was, you know, you can't plan these things, but (laughs) it surely didn't follow my plan at all. Right. And circumstances are circumstances, right? You go with the punches. Absolutely. However, you had that supportive team. You had your doulas on FaceTime. You had, obviously, your husband, your mom, and mm-hmm. you got your V back. Did baby come up right to your chest right away? He did. And he was totally healthy and he didn't have any issues while I was laboring. I was just so thankful because that was another concern since my first son had had decelerations in labor. I was worried that if that happened again, that it would just be a C-section. I would have no choice. And he was totally healthy. He was eight pounds, four ounces. So only a little bit smaller than his brother. So I felt kind of vindicated that, Hey, my pelvis isn't that small. This baby's almost the same size Mm -hmm. as my first baby. And, um, and he did really well. He started nursing right away. Everything seemed to just go so much smoother And I'm only 11 days out and my recovery is already so much easier than after my C-section. It's really incredible. I I knew from reading that it was supposed to be easier, but experiencing it is a whole nother level. Right. Yeah. What other things have you had to adjust postpartum because of COVID? I think that not being able to go anywhere is just such a weird thing for us. And especially the days we were in the hospital. So we went into the hospital Friday and ended up not leaving until Tuesday afternoon. So we were there a long time. And in that time, we didn't like really check any news sources or anything. We talked to family and friends, um, but we just felt like we were kind of in a bubble and we had no visitors because they obviously didn't allow any. And so that was really bizarre. And um, being home now, when we had my first son, we we were pretty um, easygoing about taking him places. I mean, we'd keep him in his car seat with like a protector um excuse me with like a cover over it so that people wouldn't like breathe on him or poke at him or anything but we went out to dinner and things like that because in that newborn phase they just sleep so easily a lot very of the time. portable yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly so we definitely took advantage of that with my first son and this time we're like okay I guess we're just home now and we're just here <laughs> and I mean luckily you know we were saying if if this were 10 years ago, our technology would not be such that we could really keep up with our family and friends as easily. But I mean, we can FaceTime with everyone, but it is so strange just being home and not going anywhere at all Mm -hmm. and ordering like our groceries and things um, to be delivered. And um, I always felt like that was a lazy thing to do unless you were maybe elderly or something. Um, So ordering my groceries, I was like, oh, I feel weird about this. I don't, I can go do it. I can go get my groceries. But, you know, trying to keep the exposure to a minimum is it's such a strange place to be. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's something we're all feeling for sure. Um, how are you doing in terms of support? Did you have plans for, say, your mom to come stay with you guys? Did she? Is Is it just you and your husband right now? So it worked out. My mom uh, was here while we were in the hospital and then stayed um, for about five more days, I think. So that was really helpful because um, she and my husband then traded off like every other night who would stay um, with me and the baby and um, and then who would take care of the toddler. So um, we could kind of, or they could kind of trade off getting some sleep <laughs> and then be more a- available during the day too. 
So it was nice that she was able to be here for a while. Um, actually, her mom is 93, and so she's been also taking care of her mom. So it's kind of been a crazy time for her as well, trying to keep everybody safe. Um, and her mom, you know, obviously being at risk of exposure just due to her age and health conditions. So luckily, my mom's been very careful and like really hasn't been around anyone except for her mom and then us. So um, unless one of us had it, I think we're we're pretty safe, luckily. But yeah, my husband's parents, um, they haven't felt comfortable to come yet. And um, which is weird because when we had my first son, they were they were there like as soon as possible, even though we lived a lot further away. Um, so, I mean, they're in their 60s. And so I totally understand, you know, wanting to be careful and everything. But it's weird. It, it's very weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I hope that even though it's so weird that you're still feeling like you can feel whatever you're feeling and acknowledge that it's weird and know that even though FaceTime is not the same, that they're out there. And then hopefully, do you have plans of anybody else coming to support anytime soon? Or is it more waiting to see what happens? Yeah, I think we're all kind of in a waiting game about everything, just kind of um, seeing what restrictions are going to be lifted. And I wonder, um, our state, luckily, or North Carolina, hasn't had um, as many cases as a lot of other states. So um, I'm wondering if maybe on a case-by-case basis, they may start lifting some of these restrictions. Um, but we've definitely had, you know, a lot of support in that, like, um, while we were in the hospital, my dad came up uh, with my sister and they did a lot of cooking for us and like left us a bunch of stuff in our freezer. And um, so we've, we've been very lucky that everybody lives fairly close by within a couple of hours um, mm. and has been looking after us. And and I've been hearing from my doula regularly to check in and make sure everything's good. And I mean, largely our recovery has just been wonderful and um, not sleeping a whole lot, but that's the newborn phase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Mandy, if people want to connect with you or ask you questions, can they do that? And if so, how? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm on Instagram. Um, I've got a mommy blog I started with my first son that probably needs a lot of work. I haven't written anything in a while, but um, yeah, any, any of those um, options. And I'd be happy to answer any questions about like being in the hospital during this and things like that. So yeah, amazing. What's your Instagram handle? Um, it's Mandy M826. And I'll link it in the show notes, 826. And then what's the name of the blog? Um. It's New Mom Adventures, and it's on, um, oh, what is that platform? It's one of the free platforms that- Like um, Blogger? Oh, shoot. What is it called? I'm sorry. I'm like drawing a blank. <laughs> you can send me the link, and I'll link it on the show notes. Yeah, I'll no send worries. it to you. <laughs> Thank you so very much for taking time out of your postpartum and your early, like, you baby's 11 days to come talk <laughs> to me, and congratulations again on your VBAC. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, send me messages and more. And if what you want to do is get ready for life with a newborn, then go to birthfulcourses.com and sign up for my Thrive With Your Newborn online postpartum preparation classes. This class is going to set you up to do way more than just survive those first few days and first few weeks with your newborn. 
but you do want to take it before baby arrives. So go sign up right now at birthfulcourses.com and let's get you postpartum ready. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Oh, and here's what Mandy said when I asked her what she had for breakfast. Remember, she has an 11-day-old son. Oh, um, <laughs> I think I skipped breakfast and just had a cliff bar probably in the wee hours of the morning. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2020 by Adriana Lozada. Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous birthful library. Happy listening.